You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, good morning, everyone. Hi, Angie. Good morning. Everybody's looking so refreshed and wide awake from that extra hour sleep last night. How many of you last night thought, hey, I get an extra hour sleep and just stayed up really late? Yes, yeah, I know how it works, yeah. <laughs> well, as uh, Pastor Sam just pointed out, we're carrying on in a, in a series that we've been uh, doing for the last few weeks, and it's on the life of Abraham and Sarah. And some of you might who's Abraham and Sarah? Well, their story is told in the book of Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible. And as we've journeyed with them... Um, we've come across a number of themes of their lives. One of the themes is a theme of faith. Um, What is faith? And so we've discovered along the way that faith is not just believing the right things about God, though that is important. Um, It's not just agreeing with God, though that also is important. Uh, But what is faith? I, I love the way the old reformer, Martin Luther, used to put it. He says, faith is throwing yourselves on God. Yeah, amen. Amen. Oh, I'm going to love you. Yeah, you stay with me. Stay with me on this one. Yeah, this is good. Though we are talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, so you may want to get, uh, uh, <laughs> to kind of gloss over some of those parts. But faith really is trusting in God, is trusting in his goodness, his love for us, and his desire to lead us in life. And if you've been following the story, you know that the life of faith for Abraham has not been the smoothest one. At times he gets it. At times you see Abraham throwing himself on God and it's like, well, well done, Abraham. But other times you see Abraham, rather than throwing himself on God, he throws himself on himself and his own know-how and his own you know, abilities to try to fix a problem that, uh, that shows up without bringing God into the equation. And, and things don't work out that well for him. And so when I look at Abraham's life, I love studying his life because I find in Abraham a kindred spirit. Because his life of faith is up and down and up and down. I look at my life of faith, it's up and down, 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 sometimes up, right? But the other theme, and this is really important for us, the other theme that runs right through the story of Abraham and Sarah, in fact, it runs right through the story of Scripture and the story of our lives, is a story of grace, of God's amazing grace that though we stumble in our faith walk, that doesn't change God's grace towards you and me. And we see this grace in the story of Abraham and Sarah. We see it in God's initial call to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, God makes his promise, a twofold promise. He says, Abraham, go to the land I'm going to show you. I will make you into a great nation, and through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that promise is a, is a thread that runs right through Scripture. We see how God rescued Abraham and Sarah from Egypt. That was a bit of a messy story. As Pastor Brad taught last week, we see God's promise and covenant that he makes with Abraham. And this morning... We are going to be covering um, a story. It's a large story, and it's found in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Uh, and it's best seen as one story, but to read the, all the chapters may take a little bit of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some summarizing along the way, 
But I would encourage you tonight to read chapters 18 and 19. They are fascinating, fascinating uh, stories in, in these two chapters. So let's just get a feel of what we're going to be looking at today. And we'll look at a little bit of chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 18. Uh, and we're going to begin in verse 1. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. In uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, we read, And the Lord appeared to him, him being Abraham, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. Will I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves? And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, I do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of flour, of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that, that he had prepared and set it before them and stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return, return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent, at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Uh, and Sarah laughed at herself, laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, Ah, I, I did not laugh, uh, for she was afraid. But he said, Oh, but you did laugh. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you. This is your word. You're the same Lord that, that spoke to Abraham and Sarah, who's with us today in Coquitlam in 2023. And so we pray that you would speak to us that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to receive from you today, and then the courage to respond to whatever you say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this story, chapter 18, lays out a fascinating encounter between God and Abraham. Um, in many ways, it's a picture of Abraham's deepening faith, his deepening walk with God. Because we read that the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre uh, in, in the heat of the day. And then we read that Abraham lifts up his eyes. And he's starting to do this more and more. He's starting to lift up his eyes to look beyond himself. And he sees three men standing in front of him. Now, as we discover, these three men are not just three men. Uh, but they're actually the Lord, God, and two angels. In some mysterious way, they make themselves known to Abraham. But they remain in human form. So, so what does Abraham do? Well, he welcomes them. 
He brings water, uh, water for them to drink, water to wash their feet. Um, he, he invites them to take in the shade and the heat of the day. And he and Sarah rush about making a meal for these, for, for these guests. And it's actually a remarkable picture of, of generous hospitality, of making space for another. And, and there's an urgency because five times we come across the word ran and quickly, ran and quickly. And, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a model of hospitality that we can show because as the book of Hebrews reminds us, uh, we, we practice hospitality because who knows, we may be entertaining angels. So while this is happening, we read that God reiterates his promise to Abraham by telling him that he will have a son about this time next year. Sarah listens in and she chuckles to herself. I mean, she's like, no, I'm quite old. The, the idea of having a baby is, is quite ridiculous. But the Lord calls her on this and asks a very important question that we need to hear him ask us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord to do? This is the Lord's promise. He says, I will make it happen. Now, from this scene, the scene shifts, and, and it becomes a little more ominous. Ominous matters are brought up, and they are matters of judgment. The three guests, the Lord and the two angels, walk with Abraham, and they walk together. And they come to the edge of a valley, and they can see the valley, and they can see within the valley the city of Sodom. And God reveals to Abraham his plan to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their deep-seated wickedness. We read that God has heard the outcry against these cities, and for their sin is very dark. And then we see that God will investigate further how sinful these cities are before bringing judgment. And then the two angels leave, and it's just Abraham and the Lord standing together. And so the scene is about judgment, and the next chapter is about judgment. And I just want to pause, because in our culture today, when I talk about judgment, when anybody talks about judgment, we feel a little twitchy. Talking about judgment is awkward in our day and age. It sounds kind of judgy. And the one sin that we could all agree on in Western culture is the sin of being judgy. And we, we make it a practice to judge those who are judgy, which is a bit ironic, but we won't get into that. <clears throat> the point is, in our culture, we don't like the idea of judgment. But I would contend that every one of us here, in our hearts, deeply longs for judgment. Because when we hear of somebody who's, you know, very, you know, very violent person, maybe he committed all sorts of violence towards children or whatever, and we hear the story of this person getting away with it and dying peacefully in his sleep. We're like, that ain't right. That's not right. When we hear stories of, you know, the atrocities committed by guys like Paul Pot, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, um, you can go on. Our hearts say, this isn't right. Lord, we want you to make all things right. If 
the person gets away with it, we want there to be some kind of consequence for a person's action, don't we? And I think deep down, our desire is that there would be justice. And when we feel a sense of injustice, that's how we're, we're made in God's image. And so we want justice. We want God to make all things right. We want the fact that evil and sin would not have the final word in this world, but justice would be. We long for judgment, I think. And without this need for for some consequence to our sin, the cross doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In this passage, we read that there's going to be a deserved judgment over the land. But what happens next is really remarkable. You have to read about this. What happens next is, is, is just Abraham and the Lord. And what does Abraham do? He intercedes for Sodom. First, he acknowledges that God, it's God's call. God is the judge over all the world. And he says to God, he says, surely, he goes, you are the judge. Surely the judge over all the earth will do what is right. But then Abraham says, oh, now what if, what if in this city you found 50 righteous people? Would you still judge it? Would you still destroy the city? And, and, and God meets Abraham's intercession each time with grace. And God says, no, no, for the sake of 50 people, I won't judge the land. And then Abraham goes, ha, good. Um, How about 45? It's kind of a strange haggling. They just agreed. And it's like, and then he goes one lower. He goes, how about 45 people? If there's 45 righteous people, will you still judge the land? And God says, no, not for the sake of 45 righteous people. I I won't judge the land. And so it's it's, it's amazing because Abraham's haggling and interceding for the city, and each point, God meets them with grace. He says, no, I won't. And they go all the way down to 10. For the sake of 10, and God says, no, even for the sake of 10, I won't judge the city if 10 righteous people could be found. Turns out 10 righteous people could not be found. Now, two things stand out in this whole scene. One, it's an incredible picture of what the life of prayer can look like. There's an honesty and an earthiness to prayer in the Bible. You need to see that. You need to study the the, the prayers in the Bible because they're very honest. They're very earthy. And sometimes as as followers of Jesus Christ, when we pray, we think we have to sound a certain way. We we need to sound, I don't know, we got to pray in King James language. And we got to use, you know, fancy words like, oh, thou most omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one. And, and then you, you got to throw a few thous in there. It's like thou, thou art, I think it's thou, thou, thee, thou. And so you get all confused, but you're trying to get the language right and sound all really good in our prayers. But if you actually look at the prayers in the Bible, they're, they're very earthy and they're very honest And I say this, when you you pray, pray as you are, right? Because if you try to put on a persona, oh, Lord, thou art, and God sees right through that. It's like, okay, enough, enough, enough. (laughs) Tell me. Because he knows your heart. It's not like you're fooling him. Ah, this is who I am, God. He said, really? I created you. Um, (laughs) I know everything. I know you better than you know yourself. So why the pretense? Just speak to me, okay? And if you read the Psalms, that's what it's all about. It's just very honest and earthy. And this is what Abraham's doing. It's very honest, very earthy. 
Secondly, the other thing that stands out is the length that God will go in order to demonstrate his mercy. He is way more gracious than we deserve or imagine. By the time you get to chapter 19, though, the contrast between God's willingness to show mercy and Sodom's great evil is on display. So let's turn our attention to chapter 19. Uh, And that's the second story. And uh, I'm going to read through the second story. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a read. Um, and I'll tell you the story. Um, and as I'm telling you the story, let me just say that I'm, I'm very glad that this is not a family service this weekend. Um, there's, some, there's some intense things in this. So chapter 19, you can follow along if you want. It's Genesis chapter 19. Because in the two angels, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose and met them, bowed down with his face to the the earth and said, My Lord, uh, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can get up early in the morning and go on your way. And the men said, No, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly so that they turned aside and entered his house. And he made them a feast of baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people uh, to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them, that we may have sex with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has come, he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and he drew near to break, and they drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, uh, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him, him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought them out and set them outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, run for your life. Do, you not, do, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me, and I die. Look, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. 
He said this to him. Behold, he said this to him. Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the, from the Lord out of the heavens. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities which Lot had lived. Now, Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. And he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Firstborn says, our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth, so come, let's make our father drunk, and we'll lie with him, and we'll preserve our offspring. So the firstborn does that, sleeps with her father, and gets pregnant. Second night, they get the father drunk again, he sleeps with the second daughter, she becomes pregnant. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son, and called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Yikes. Okay, so this is chapter 19. Now, this whole scene takes place less than 48 hours after the story of Abraham and God. And what we're presented with is a scene of judgment, incredible judgment. And it consists of two incidents. One, we have the story of the judgment of Sodom. And the second, we have a very disturbing story of Lot and his two daughters. And so the question I want to ask you is this. How did Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, how in the world did he end up in this mess? And we can look at this story and we could shake our heads and say, oh, Lot, Lot, how could you have gotten yourself into this mess? But what I'm going to suggest is that if we look closely at Lot, we may see some echoes of our own lives. So how did Lot get into this mess? Well, back in chapter 13, we, we, we see um, when presented with a choice over which land to take, Lot lifts up his eyes and takes the better land. Even though it should have gone to Abraham, he says, I'm going to take the better land. But then we get the warning at the end of chapter 13. We get two warnings. One is this. In the land, there were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were very evil cities. So we see that. And then we read these words right at the end of chapter 13. It says, Lot moved his people, moved all of his livestock, moved all of his family, and they pitched their tents on the outskirts of Sodom. And so by the end of chapter 13, we get this, this contrast. Abraham wakes up in the morning. What is the first thing he sees? He sees an altar to the Lord. So every morning he wakes up, he lifts up his eyes, and he reminds himself that he is a pilgrim following the ways of God. Lot wakes up every morning and hears the sounds of the city and sees the lures of the big city. 
And so one of the warnings for us this morning is this. Be careful where you set up camp. Now, I can hear Lot, if you challenge Lot in this, Lot would say, hey, dude, back off. I'm not moving into Sodom. I'm not going into Sodom. I'm, I'm setting up my tents outside of Sodom. I'm still a pilgrim. I'm still living in a tent. I'm still walking with God. But you know what? It's hard living in a tent all the time. And it's good to have some comforts around. So I'm just, I'm not moving into Sodom. I know it's sketch. I know it's, it's got some, but I'm, I'm moving just on the outskirts of Sodom. And it's convenient because there's a shopping mall. There's groceries close by. Right? I don't have to go hunting or anything. I can just go into town. There's a 7-Eleven. There's everything there, right? I'm not in, I'm not in Sodom. But chapter 19, where, where, where's, where's Lot? Where do we find Lot? Yeah, yeah he's, he's sold his tents. He's bought a condo. And he's living in Sodom, isn't he? Where do we find him? It's, it's, it's an important detail. We find him in the city gates. Now, why is that so important? Well, to be in the city gates means that you, you're not just living in the city, but you become a leader in the city. Because it's in the city gates where, where people would bring legal cases and you would have to, you know, administer justice. And so Lot has somehow become maybe not the mayor, but at least a council person or whatever in, of, of, of the city of Sodom. He's become a civic leader. Now, let's, we need to pause here and ask ourselves an awkward question. Where are we setting up camp? Where are we pitching our tents? Now, some of you here this morning are really struggling with pornography. And you think, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I can go to some of these websites. They're not the really bad ones. I'm okay. Well, how's that working for you? Some of you struggle with other forms of addiction, and, and, and you put yourself in the proximity of danger, not in the danger, but close to it. And you tell yourself, and you tell others, and when people challenge you, you say, hey, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. It's just one drink. I'm just having one drink. I'm just popping by, just one drink on the way home. Or, you know, I, I know I know that he's not good for me, but I'm just going to text to say hi. I'm just going to pop by and just say hi to him. I know he's, he's not good for me. But the problem is, you, you, you do this. You, you, you flirt. You flirt. You get close. Before you know it, you're in trouble. And then you get into a mess, and he's like, how did I get into this mess? Well, that's what happens to Lot. Now, back to the story. I mean, things go from dangerous to bad to worse for Lot in this chapter. Things are so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, we read, that God has judged the cities and has sent his angels to completely destroy them. 
By this time, Lot, who has completely forgotten about being a pilgrim and walking with God, he's become a resident of Sodom, and he's stuck. Now, we have to realize something here. It's not like Lot has become a really bad guy or anything. Um, In fact, in the city of Sodom, he probably stands out as one of the few righteous ones. Not ten, but there's a few of them. We see Lot practicing hospitality. He sees his strangers. He knows how dangerous it is to be out at night. He invites them into his home. He, he offers them a meal. He gives them a place to sleep and he, with the idea that they'd be off first thing in the morning. It's a little detail. It's, it's strange. He says, you can eat and stay the night and then go first thing in the morning. It's like, why do you want them gone first thing in the morning? Like it's a, these little details you have to pay attention to. But when inhabitants of the city surround his house and they bang on the door and they demand because they want to rape his guests, what does Lot do? Lot protects them. And so far, that's okay. But he does so in a strange way, in a very disturbing way. What does he do? He offers his daughters to be raped instead. Now, how did Lot get into the place where he thought that this was a good solution? My point is is that it didn't happen overnight. It was a product of a number of bad decisions done over time. And then he's in such a mess, and he's trying to make a good decision, but he's in such a mess he can't even make a good decision anymore. And, And the other thing, he's got to the point where he's no longer walking with God. He's no longer living the pilgrim life. He doesn't even recognize that these are angels in his midst. He's become blind to the reality of God. Why? Because he's given up the life of a pilgrim, of walking with God. And this affects not only his ability to make decisions, it affects his ability to lead, right? He's a leader in the city, but when he says, hey, don't do this, how do the people react? They're like, shut up. You come to our city, you think you're the big shot now, you be quiet. We'll deal with you even worse than these guys when we're done. So he's got no say with the, with, the, with the city. And he's lost all of his credibility with his family. He tells his, 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 his sons-in-law, who are engaged to his daughters, he says, you know what, the Lord is going to destroy the city. And what do the sons, sons-in-law do? They laugh at him. He's become a joke. They don't listen to him. They don't even think he's, they don't take him seriously. His wife, his own wife, she turns and she lingers. She doesn't want to go. She likes living in a condo, right? Well, and then his decision with his daughters, well, that's not going to win him world's greatest dad award. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. Now, here's the thing, though. Even in the end, when he's confronted with the fact that God was going to save him, that these men were actually angels, what does he do? He haggles with the angels. You notice that? Abraham haggles for the sake of grace. Lot haggles with the angels to save his own skin. He haggles with them. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Like sulfur is about to fall from the sky. And they're saying, 
run for your lives, run to the hills. And he goes, I, I don't want to go to the hills. And they're like, go. Yeah, I don't do well in hills. You know, I don't, I don't like this whole camping thing, tent and pilgrim. Um, would it be possible to go to a city? And they're like, are you kidding me? That's in between the texts. Are you kidding me? Fine. Go to the, go, just go. And he's like, and he's like, okay, we'll go to the city. It's just a little city, thanks. And he goes to the city. But even then he doesn't go. Because he's afraid. Like he is, he's, he's, he doesn't want to go back to being the life of a, to the life of a pilgrim. He, he doesn't want to walk with the author of life. He wants his old life back. I liked it in the condo. I liked living in the city. So another lesson. Whenever you and I take up the role of being God of our own lives... Whenever we try to live our lives independently of the author of life, when we give up the idea of the pilgrim life, of walking with God, then what happens? We end up living more out of fear than trust. And before you know it, you give in to fear, and you end up in places where you'd never have expected. So he doesn't want to go up to the hills. He wants to go to the city, but it turns out he's scared of the city, and so where does he, where does he end up? cave he's stuck in a cave he's stuck in a cave and he's hiding there with his daughters the daughters realizing that their fiancés were now dead decide to get their dad drunk they sleep with them they get pregnant to have children and this is really rock bottom stuff but I think it needs to speak into our lives be careful where you camp Don't be pitching your tents near Sodom. Beware of lingering around areas of temptation in your life. Now, this is going to look different for everyone. What what tempts you may be different than what tempts me. So you need to know your heart. Where, Where are you prone, prone to fall? And here's the thing, you're not going to figure that out on your own. You need to be in community. That's why we that's why we gather together as a community, so we can speak into each other's lives. The number of people I know that stopped gathering in community during COVID and then after COVID never came back. And then they're like, oh, my life is a mess. It's like, well, no kidding. You've been trying to go it alone. We need people to speak into our lives. The other thing that comes out of this is it's an encouragement for us not to give up the pilgrimage. Keep living the pilgrim life and walk with God. I, I, I encounter a lot of people who have so-called deconstructed their faith. They, they've, they've said, well, I've walked away from Christianity. It doesn't make sense. I'm, 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 I'm no longer a follower of Jesus because, you know, they, so many questions aren't answered. I'm like, really? Now, I'm glad you have good questions, but you have to realize the deepest question you can ask about the nature of reality you're going to only find the answer in and through Jesus. You cannot plumb the depths of the mystery and the power of Jesus. And so any question you have, any question you have, 
Don't walk away. Don't walk away from the author of life because you're not going to find your answers. Press in. And to, to, to whatever extent I can help you answer his questions, I'll, I'll do my best. But don't walk away. You, know, you end up like the, the apostles when, when Jesus says, are you going to walk away? And they're like, where are we going to go? <laughs> you're the, you have the author of life. You're, you're the author of life. So don't give up hope also. Don't give up hope. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you're shaking your heads, and you're thinking, yeah, David, you have no idea the mess that I'm in. I've made so many bad decisions in my life, and I've been living the consequence of these decisions for so long. You talk about hope, but I don't see any hope in my life. My, My family, they don't even talk to me anymore. My kids don't talk to me. Some of you, you've, you've worked your whole life and you've, you're now retired and you're like, what was it all about? I busted my butt for 25 years, 30 years, and now what do I have got to show for it? Some of you may be feeling you've dug yourself into a hole that there's no way you're ever going to be able to climb out of it. Well, if that's where you're at, I want you to hear, there's, there, the, the end of the story sounds really dark, but there's a glimmer of hope. Yes, Lot's life at the end of chapter 19 is an absolute mess, but there's a glimmer of hope. Because he ends up, you know, getting drunk, sleeping with his daughters. They have kids. One, you get a group called the Ammonites, they end up being enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament. But the other group, what's the other group that was formed? The Moabites, yeah. You know, and they, they were enemies to, to Israel. But, but, hang on. Is there not a Moabite that you can remember her name? Ruth. Yeah, there's an entire book that's based on her. And it's a picture of a Moabite who rather than worshiping the gods of her people, she clings to the true God, the only God. And she learns about his covenant faithfulness and his love. And she throws herself on God. And wonder of wonders, she is brought into the very story of salvation. She's the great, 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 great grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. She's brought into the lineage of the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. And so we need to see that because this is what God is really good at doing. God is very good at bringing life out of death. God is very good at bringing hope out of despair. He's very good at bringing light out of darkness. And so what seems like such a despairing place we're reminded of this, that God's power to redeem, his power to bring good out of tragedy is always greater than our ability to mess up. Do you believe that? God God can reach, God can reach us wherever we're at. I mean, he, I was, talk about rock bottom, I could tell you stories where I was at living on the other side of the world, and God in his grace grabbed hold of me 
and brought light out of death. And wherever you're at this morning, you think, not me. Oh, yeah, no. You can't be too far away from him. And God is so good at bringing life out of death and wants to do that in your own life. The question is, do you trust him? Will you throw yourself on him on this? God is in the business of setting prisoners free. And so that means no matter where you're at this morning, you're not out of his reach. There's no ditch too deep for him to reach you and pull you out. Do you believe that? Because it's all fulfilled on the cross. That's why we have a cross here. Because the cross tells us that no matter what we've done, no matter how bad that sin was, it was dealt with once and for all on the cross. Jesus paid the price that we could never pay. He died the death that we should have died, did not stay dead, but was raised to new life and now says, come to me and find rest for your weary souls. And some of you need to come to Jesus and find rest for your weary souls this morning. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that in a number of ways, but the main way we're going to do that is by taking communion together. So I'm going to invite the communion servers to come forward at this point, those who are serving communion, and I'm going to explain what this means. So you're going to take ordinary bread and ordinary juice, but they have extraordinary meaning. So when you take the bread this morning, you're saying there's no ditch too deep that Jesus cannot rescue me out of. When you take the bread, you say, I belong to you, Jesus. I live and I will live forever because of your amazing grace. When you take the juice, the juice represents the blood of Jesus. It represents what he has done on our behalf that we could never do on our own. And so it's, it's a picture of amazing grace. And so I don't care what church you're from. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, come to the table. Okay? Some of you today, is like, I'm in a ditch, I'm in a ditch. Well, as an act of coming out of the ditch, of, of, of Jesus pulling you out of the ditch, take communion, even for the first time, and do so with thanksgiving. Some of you may be in a place, I'm still not there yet. Then maybe just let, let the, uh, you don't need to take communion because it won't mean a whole lot to you. But we'll do this as a family, all right? So come, when you take that bread and the juice, remember to the seen and the unseen world that you live because of what Jesus has done for you. He can pull you out of that ditch. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. You are the author of life. And we confess that many of us have folded up our tents <laughs> and have... Uh, moved into town and, and we've stopped walking with you and it's been a mess and so what we want to say to you today is that we want to walk with you we want to enter back into the pilgrim life that you've invited us into we know that it's not an easy life but oh this is where life is found Lord, I pray for those here this morning who feel like they're too far gone. They're not too far gone. May they know you're drawing, you're drawing them to, to yourself this morning. And may they take this bread, take this juice with thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you administer your truth, that we are the body of Christ, saved by grace through your shed blood. May this become front and center when we take communion this morning. So we ask this by your Holy Spirit that you administer the elements to us. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.